let's get to work. Today, my title for you is this, The Identifying Marks of God's People. The Identifying Marks or Three Truths of God's People. Let, let me begin by saying this, humankind has always been religious, has always been theological, but there's something that we all must grasp and appreciate if we would successfully understand sound theology, and that is this. Just as Genesis 11 teaches us that the Tower of Babel was constructed so that people could make a name for themselves and reach God, so every single religion is duplicating that process. And in fact, they are trying to make a name for themselves and build their way to heaven. But that's contrary to what the Bible teaches us. It's contrary to what it tells us God has done for us on our behalf. It's a thematic problem that runs throughout the scriptures, and I want to share some of these things with you because we have religion on one side, and on the other side we have what God has done for us. I'm going to share a handful of verses with you. They're going to come up on the screen. The first is Psalm 115, verse 3. It says, our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. How much does he do? All that he pleases. Isaiah 46, 10 says, my counsel shall stand, declares the Lord, and I will accomplish whose purpose? My purpose. Matthew 11, 27 Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son reveals him. John chapter 6, verse 44 says, no one can come to me. How many can come? No one. No one can come to me except the Father draws him. To me. Now, some will say, well, the Father is drawing them by the preaching of the gospel, and that would be true to a degree, but only to a degree, because this is Jesus preaching the gospel. And in the midst of Jesus preaching the gospel, he still says, while he's preaching the gospel, oh, by the way, you can't come unless the Father draws you. That's another sort of calling. It's a distinct calling. The interesting thing is this. We have a tendency, you and I, to come to God's word with an idea of what it's actually going to say to us. And so often, we are surprised by the disagreement that we find. And then you and I must come to a point of decision, an existential crisis, if you would, where we have to say, will I believe what I thought it was going to say? Or will I believe what it says? Let me ask you that question again. When we come to the word of God, are we going to have that crisis of faith where we say, I refuse to believe what it says in favor of what I thought it was going to say? Or do we say, that's not what I thought you were going to say, God, but I take your word over my own. Here's my challenge for you today. Listen and learn God's word. 
Listen and learn God's word. Don't approach it with an understanding that you may or may not have achieved from the Bible. Don't approach it with an understanding that you assume is going to be presented. Instead, sit empty-handed with an open heart and mind at the feet of God's word and just say, God, speak to me. And wherever I might have a challenge, let me wrestle with it in good faith. Here's our text this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 7, and in it we find three things, three points that I would like to share with you that indicate to us the marks of God's people. God's people are righteous people, God's people are chosen people, and God's people are blessed people. God's people are righteous, chosen, and blessed. Let's begin with our first point. God's people are righteous people. This is found in the first part of our chapter, Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 8. That's where you'll find this point. First, I want you to note that God's people are righteous people. What kind of people? Righteous Righteous people. And if I had my way and I had time, I'd go back. I would have altered this, and I would have made it holy people. It's just semantics. But in chapter 7, verse 6, it says, You are a holy people to the Lord, and I was running a little behind in my preparation this week, so I did righteous, but I would have done holy. It's not important, but what I want you to know is God's people are special to him. God's people are unique to him. When God looks down on the earth, unlike us, where we see shades and colors and ethnicities and so on, God sees two groups, those who are his and those who are not. Now, we like to confuse things and confound people with politics and paradigms, but the reality is you are in Christ or you are out of Christ. You are with him or you are against him. You are gathering or you are scattering abroad. That's not my word. That's Christ's word. And we've got to come to this conclusion today, church. We aren't special because of who we are. We are special because of who our God is. And we are righteous in so much that we are connected to him, and he expects his people to behave in a manner worthy of his name. They belong to God. They don't belong to anyone or anything else. In fact, they don't even belong to themselves. I'll tell you this as well. You don't belong to yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. You are not your own. Say, I am not my own. Because you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Friends, if you are in Christ, you are in Christ because you've been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Peter says, not with silver or gold, which are corruptible, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. Jesus purchased you, and as a result, you belong to God. And we are called and commanded, consequently, to be a righteous people who live righteous lives because they are led and loved by a righteous God. How do we achieve this? Well, in the context of Deuteronomy chapter 7, let me introduce you to the concept of holy war. The concept of holy war, as we see it here, presents itself against seven different people groups We don't know a lot about these people groups. They are mentioned a couple of times, once or twice, in different portions of the Old Testament scriptures. They are interspersed throughout the promised land. 
But this is God's land, amen? And this is the land which Deuteronomy tells us time and time again, God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and consequently, out of respect and faithfulness to the covenant, it would also belong to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sometimes, war happened because it was God executing justice and judgment against the people through his own people. A holy war was sometimes a mode of God's judgment on the ungodly and on the idolatrous. Now, we might not be in the same situation today because this is America 2023, not the land of Canaan. And it would be wrong for us to pull this lesson and to walk out of church this morning with our swords drawn looking for anybody who doesn't believe in Jesus. I don't know if you've ever seen the comic of the crusader sitting on his horse and the Muslim is on the ground and he has his sword drawn and the Muslim is saying, please tell me more about Jesus. I'm terribly interested. That's not the mode of conversion we're seeking. Amen. The mode of conversion that we're seeking is the gospel being preached and the spirit of God taking the gospel and transforming hearts from the inside out. It's a God business. We're not forcing people by war into conversion today. We're in a different historical context. So I hope that you'll appreciate that in view of what we're looking at today. However, even though that is the case, spiritually, we're still at war. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. To some degree, church, nothing has changed. We are to be serious about our righteousness in this unrighteous world. As the people of God were in ancient times against ungodly people who were worshiping foreign gods. In their case, here, it was national. But in the New Testament time, it shifts because the New Testament wasn't national in its focus or orientation. It was global, going to all the nations, teaching them what I've commanded you. Make disciples, Jesus said, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So while there are differences between where we are today and where Israel was then, There are, nevertheless, still some principles that I think we can glean from this passage of Scripture, Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 8. I'm going to share share them with you now. Number one, first, they were to identify godlessness. First of all, the people of God were to identify godlessness. In this text, they're literally named. They're literally named. These ites, those ites. These ites and those ites over there. And I think we could learn something from this church. I think we could learn something about not having so much cowardice to call out ungodliness when we see it. And that's what it is, isn't it? Cowardice. When we're afraid of man instead of living in the fear of God, when we're afraid to call out something that is a sin, even though we know it's a sin because we don't want pushback at work or in a conversation with a family member or a friend over coffee. 
Now, as I said before, we don't have to stand on people's throats with our sword drawn, but we do need to draw lines, just like God's people do here. I am identifying where the godlessness is. Verse 2 says, you shall make no covenant with them and show them no mercy, or as the NIV puts it, make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Either way, you get the gist. God is telling his people that they aren't permitted to have mercy on godlessness. Let me say that again. You are not to have mercy on godlessness. Now, a person who is living a godless, atheistic, agnostic life, whichever they might be living, who has interest in the gospel, you need to take sincere interest in. But the godlessness is never permitted. It is never excused. It is never allowed. In God's eyes, sin is sin is sin. But he redeems sinners, amen? And he does so by the good news of the gospel, and that is what we always have to be reminded of. Secondly, they were to separate themselves. Not only were they to identify the godlessness, and as chapter 7 says, it's this one, it's that one, it's this one, it's that one. They name it. Without apology, it's named. But in addition to that, they were not to commingle. They were to separate themselves. Well, for one... This indicates that when they went against these people groups and did the destruction that they did, it wasn't total. Okay, so the language is severe, but if they killed every single man, woman, child, and animal, then the command would be superfluous. It would be excessive and unnecessary to say, by the way, I don't want you to commingle. Well, if everybody's dead, commingling is kind of a no warning necessary, right? But apparently, some people were left behind after battle. So, so here's the idea, church. We're not living in a bubble. There is no such thing as a bomb shelter Christianity where we just wait it out. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to live as salt and light. That's what our Lord taught us. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul, the apostle, says that we are supposed to shine like stars in the midst of a dark world. What a beautiful and poetic expression. And I think it gives you the idea that, yes, the darkness is serious, but so is the light that you possess as a member of the gospel community. We must be separate, which means every single serious relationship that you and I have in our lives must be with someone who identifies like us with Jesus Christ. You can't be dating and marrying and going into business and every other kind of serious decision that you will make in your life with someone that does not believe that Jesus died for them and rose again on the third day. You can. Of course you can. But you can also inherit the consequences of such a decision. And eventually, church, I'm here to tell you, that will happen. Inevitably that happens. And that's exactly what we see here in verse 3. In verse 3, they are told, you shall not intermarry. Why not? Verse 4 says, because they will turn your sons from following me to serve other gods. Listen, for a long time in our country, 
the leaders that would be, took texts like this and said, black should not marry white, and Hispanics should not marry black, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That has nothing to do with that. This has nothing to do with this. Everybody talks about race. There's only one race. It's the human race. Now, there are ethnicities and there are cultures. God made us as colorful and as diverse as he did the colors of the rock in the Grand Canyon. God loves creativity and diversity. But there's only one race, and that's the human race. Don't let MSNBC or CNN tell you otherwise. In the midst of the human race, if God so leads you, and God so brings a person into your life to love romantically, the first qualification is not whether or not they're sexy. The first qualification is not whether or not they can cook or fix a car. The first qualification is whether or not they love Jesus. That is what intermarrying is about. If you are in Christ and the person you're interested in is, is not, and you begin a relationship, that's called intermarrying. Doesn't matter what shade their skin is. Doesn't matter if they come from Miami or Puerto Rico or Cuba or Canada. What matters is whether or not they're in Christ. Because once you have a relationship of that level, the two become one. And when two people become one, crazy things happen. And that's a sermon for another time. But I'm here to tell you, friends, it's hard enough to have a healthy marriage with two people who love Jesus. You want to see a mess? Get involved with somebody who doesn't believe what you believe. So God says to his people, don't intermarry with them. Why can't I intermarry with them? Because they don't believe what you believe. And if you do, they may lead you away from me. And that cannot happen. So we see, first of all, that we are righteous people, that we are to live led and loved by God, who is righteous himself, in a righteous manner, in a way that demonstrates that we believe in principles, in morals, in ethics, even if everyone in the world around us is going crazy, and everyone around us is going crazy. But are we holding the line are we standing firm on the principles of God's word are we taking opportunities with our friends our colleagues our family members to say actually that's not what I believe because the Bible says oh you still you still believe that book yes Lord yes Lord secondly not only are God's people a righteous people with the expectation that comes to naming godlessness and living separate from godlessness. But secondly, God's people are also a chosen people. This is verses 9 through 11. If you look at it with me, it says, For you, beginning at uh, 6 there, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were fewer in number. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping 
the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays, this is part of God's faithfulness. He's not faithful on one side and unfaithful on another. He also is faithful to repay to their faith face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay them to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes that, and the rules that I've commanded you today. Second, Not only are the people of God a righteous people, but they are a chosen people. That's right. God's people are a chosen people. And remember this. Say amen if you're listening. Jesus was not lost. You were. Jesus was not lost. You were. And here's another thing. Jesus did did not need to be found. You needed to be found. When we approach salvation, we approach it man-centric. So often we're like, I have decided to follow Jesus. No, you didn't. You decided to follow sin. There are none righteous. No, not one. There are none who understand, none who seek God. That's what the rest of Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says. Everybody knows, oh, there are none righteous, no, not one. Oh, the next part says, no one understands God and no one seeks God. How many seek God? No one, because we're lost. And we need to be found. Jesus didn't need a Savior. We needed a Savior. So he says in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, I came to seek and to save what was lost. Do you see that? He, he, he does not say, I have come so that those who are, who are really looking and searching with resolution could find me. No, he says, I've come to seek and to save what was lost. And friends, that's us. We were lost. The only thing we've ever sought is sin. And even when we do good, it's just a splendid sin because we're sinners. Everything we touch is contaminated with the disease that our forefather, Adam, instilled in us. The salvation that we so often take for granted and fail to appreciate was the work of God begun in eternity past for our good and for his glory. I want to share with you a couple of things. The first thing is this. We see the teaching. The first thing that we see here in this passage is the teaching. And the teaching is this. God chose his people. It's as simple as that. It's as straightforward as that. God chose his people. Look at verse 6. I don't want you to argue with me. I want you to look at the Bible, and then you can argue with God. Verse 6 says... You are a people holy, that's righteous, special, reserved, set apart. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. Get this, church. The Lord your God has what? Chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of how many people? 
All the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now you see, whether we use the word here, chosen, or whether we look at its synonyms in the New Testament, which is like, for example, Paul's word, election, or predestination, or the word that Peter uses, foreknowledge, or foreknown, those whom he foreknew, he chose. Regardless of what phrase we decide to use, one thing is certain. Say amen if you're listening. It is God who pursues us. It is God who pursues us. And it is God who enables us to place our faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Because, as Ephesians 2.1 says, we are dead in trespasses and sins. You know what dead people do. Um, Many of you have been to funerals where you've seen someone there in the casket, and you're paying your respects. You're loving and supporting their family. And that's that's a terrible thing. That's a sad thing in that moment, so don't take this disrespectfully when I say this. But, but But if we were to drop a car on the person in that casket, they would feel nothing because they're dead. Paul is saying you are completely and utterly unresponsive. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, which means until God does a work on us, we're unresponsive. Jesus says it this way, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, why am I supposed to be born again from my mother? I don't understand. And then Jesus says, no, it's the Spirit's work. That's the Spirit's work. And, and, and how does the Spirit work? He tells Nicodemus, well, you know how the wind blows. You have no idea where it's coming from or where it's going, and you have no control over the wind? And Nicodemus says, yeah. He says, it's like the wind. You have no control over it. it does, the Spirit does his thing. I like what Jonah says. Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Did you get that, church? Salvation belongs to the Lord. In other words, we're not telling God how this is going to work out. God's telling us how this is going to work out. Think about it. Think about it. Listen. Abraham was sitting in his father's tent in the land of Ur. And God comes to Abraham and says to him, go to the land of Canaan. Listen to this text. Listen to this text. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make you a great name so that you will be a blessing. God chose Abraham. God chose Abraham. Abraham didn't choose God. God did a work in Abraham's life. Abraham was minding his own business, taking care of his father's flock, living in the land of Ur. And God came into his life and said, you're moving. The book of Genesis doesn't tell us, once upon a time there was a man who realized that there was a God who made the heavens and the earth, and he left his father's house in search and pursuit of this God. It's funny when I say it like that, isn't it? But we we talk and believe like that. We talk and believe sometimes like salvation is on the part of people, and it's not. We know who salvation is in the hands of when we know someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, and we pray, God, 
do something in their life. We know who's in charge of salvation when we pray that way. We even see this in the case of Jacob and Esau, who were the grandchildren of Abraham. Before Jacob and Esau were born, God spoke and said, the older shall serve the younger. And Paul in Romans chapter 9 pulls that text, and this is what he says, and I quote, in order that God's purpose of election might stand, not of works, but because of him who calls. In other words, Paul grabs that idea and he says, the reason God spoke that before Esau and Jacob were born and could do good works was so that everybody knew it wasn't about good works. It was about God's choice. Well, this is a big pill to swallow, isn't it? Because we're raised with this idea of free will. And we listen to these motivational talks on, on, on YouTube and, and, and you've got to muster up the strength and become all that you can be. And Tony Robbins has got people walking on hot coals. But God says, you are my people because I chose you. It is in the hands of God. Let me put it to you plainly like this. If you're a Christian today, it's because God chose you. If you're not a Christian, then God is calling you and commanding you to believe in the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Because Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, whoever calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Now, down the road, if you are not a Christian, and later down the road you become a Christian, then we know God chose you. <laughs> this is God's business. This is not our business. All we're doing is taking what the text says and teaching it, studying it, learning it. The second thing that I want you to note on this important thing is not only the teaching that God chose us, but secondly, I want you to note the condition of God's choice. What is the condition of God's choice? In a word, nothing. What is the condition of God's choice? Nothing. And you say, well, th this can't be right. You say, you say well, well when, I, when you say, Joe, that God chose you, I'm replying, well, yeah, because he saw how good I was going to be. Or, or, yeah, God chose, God chose me, but he chose me after he saw that I would choose him. Or, 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 or he knew how integral I would be to his kingdom when he looked into the future and he said, well, if I choose Joe, he's going to have such a great church at First Baptist Cutler Ridge that if I don't choose him, my purpose will be thwarted. Oh, when I say it like this, it sounds a little blasphemous, doesn't it? Chose you because you wanted you. I love when Bruce preaches it for me. <laughs> you, you, took, you took my steam there. Go to verse 7. Verse 7. Here's the, answer. Here's the answer to this dilemma. Verse 7 says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, 
For you are the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Again, here, here, here it is. What is the condition on which God chose his people because he chose to love them? There is no condition in us that has disposed God toward us. We are all equally sinners under his judgment. Were they stronger? Nope. Were they mightier in number? God said, no, 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 no. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't anything on your part. No, I chose you and loved you because I chose to love you. It's a God thing. In the New Testament, there are a few verses that I'd like to read to you that say something along the same lines, and I think will clarify these for us. Are they, did I put those up there, Lou? Yes, okay. So John 15, 16 says, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. He's like, well, but in the Greek, it's, no, this is in the Greek, it says, you didn't choose me, I chose you, and I appointed you to bear much fruit, that you should, that you should bear much fruit and abide, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, you, it would be given to you. Ephesians 1.4, God chose us. God did what? God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It's a long, 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 long time ago. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. And what is the basis on which he made this choice? According to the purpose of what? According to the purpose of his will. Not according to the purpose of my works. Not according to the purpose of your good deeds. Not according to the ministry that you might do for his kingdom, which we ought to do. Amen. But those things are not the bases on which God made his choice. He made his choice in himself. Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see the links in the chain here, church. Predestined, long time ago. He called, meaning there was a time, and for me, it was me sitting at a desk reading the Gospel of Matthew. That's how God saved me. Reading a Bible that my mom got for me. Years later, I pulled that Bible off the shelf and started reading the Sermon on the Mount, and that's where I met Jesus. I was predestined, but in that moment, God called me. Now, some people know right where they got saved. Not everybody does. Sometimes we kind of get saved in a season, don't we? It's like, I kind of got saved around, I think, 19. You know, and that's fine. Not everybody knows, oh, I got saved Easter 2020, you know, whatever. Not everybody knows that, and that's okay. But what I need you to hear and understand is that predestined doesn't mean it just happens. God calls you in real time, and he calls you by the gospel. And when he calls you and you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are justified. And when you are justified, it's as good as done. You will be glorified. That's what's amazing about Romans chapter 8. Paul is saying this to people who are still alive, and they're not glorified yet, if you know what I mean. 
We wake up and our ankles crack while we're going to the bathroom and then we're going to reach for the coffee above the microwave to pull it down and our shoulder goes, ah, what? I, don't, I don't remember that pain. We're far from glorified, amen? But it's as good as done because the links in God's chain do not break. Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. It's as good as done. I love what John Stott says in a commentary he wrote many, many years ago. He said, did you choose God? Yes, John Stott says, but he chose you first. This isn't a doctrine of arrogance, friends. This is a doctrine of assurance. This isn't a doctrine that should make us proud. This is a doctrine that should make us humble. Jonah 2.9 Salvation belongs to the Lord. Well, we're not only righteous, and we're not only chosen, but thirdly and finally, we are blessed. We are blessed. Now, I want to wrap up this morning with these points. We see that God's people are a blessed people, friends. I'm not sure if you realize it or not. I'm not sure if you've considered it or not, but I hope so. I hope you appreciate it. And I'm not sure if you praise him as often as you should, but I hope so. You're blessed to be alive. You're blessed to have family and friends. You're blessed to own what you do, whether small or great. You're blessed to have been through what you've been through and yet be here today. You're blessed to have the privilege of inviting other people into your life and to be invited into their lives. You're blessed to have a spouse. You're blessed to have children. You're blessed to have a great church. You're blessed to have a great church. <laughs> Amen. You are blessed. You are blessed. You are blessed. And if salvation is of his choosing, and then it's, a, it's of grace. And if we are blessed at the disposition of God, then it's because he's gracious to us. The myriad of blessings that we enjoy, it's not because we're good and we've earned it through our merit, but because God is good and loves us and is gracious toward us. We are blessed. Look at the text again um, this morning, and I want to share this thought with you as we get into it. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22. You might want to write this down somewhere. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22. I want you to think about this Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I want you to think about this. The blessing of the Lord makes us rich, and he does not add sorrow to it. If that doesn't bless you, your blessers broke. The blessing of the Lord makes us rich, and he does not add sorrow to it. Friends, if you're going through a hard time, if you're in a place of sorrow, it's not of the Lord. When God blesses us, he does not add sorrow to it. Doesn't mean life doesn't get hard. Doesn't mean there aren't challenges. It means that whatever God has in store for us is always greater than the challenge we're facing. God provides for his people, his righteous people whom he has chosen. Look at verses 13 and 14. This is what I would like you to look at. Verses 13 and 14. These are great verses, by the way. These are great verses. I love them. Verse 13 says, 
He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. How great is that? God looks at his righteous people, his chosen people, and he says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to love you, I'm going to multiply you. Look at verse 14. He says, you shall be blessed above all peoples. Of all the people in the earth, you are going to be blessed more. What does this mean? In what ways? Well, I'm glad you answered, asked that question. I'm going to answer it first. We're blessed because God is our God. First and foremost, we're blessed because God is our God. If our life ends today, we have glory forever. If our life ends today, Psalm 16 says, there are pleasures at his right hand forevermore. We already learned in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that the relationship that God's people have with God is a distinguishing marker for all the world. God says, when the nations look at you, look at your life, look at what you believe, and look at your God, they will say, is there anybody else like them? Now, friends, I want to push on you just a little bit in this moment, in addition to myself, and I want to ask you, when people look at your life, do they say, God's with them? Do they say, look at the myriad of blessings that are on their life that are not on mine because they are with God and God is with them? Secondly, I want you to look at this. this the assumption is that, that we're blessed, the people of God are blessed because they follow God's word. They follow God's word. Remember, they're blessed because they're following the commands, the statutes, and the rules. Look at verse 12. Just back up a little bit. In verse 12, and it says, And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them. You see, the principle is simple. Not only is there a blessing available to us when we're obedient, because it disposes us to God's blessings as his obedient children. But in addition to that, God's word leads to a blessed life because God's word is truth and God's word gives us wisdom. You know what Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man. What is he? Blessed. Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. That's why he's blessed. Friends, what I want to ask you today is this. Have you followed God's command? This doesn't mean that everything will always be right or everything will be easy or free of trouble. That promise is never made to us in the Bible. But I can tell you this, if you aren't obedient, if you're making a practice of sin, you're not going to be blessed by God because God doesn't want you to be comfortable in a life of sin. God wants you to be uncomfortable in sin. He wants to bless you in righteous decision-making, not in unrighteous decision-making. So when your life is hard, when things are difficult, it might be that's just God's plan for that season of your life. It might be that God is working on you, pruning you, disciplining you, growing you. Sometimes God allows and permits difficulties in our life because he wants us to grow. But if it's not that, 
survey your life, assess your decision making, and say, is there something that I'm doing that has led to a conflict between my God and me? Finally, we're blessed because the outcome belongs to God. We're blessed because the outcome belongs to God. And let me say this, God is good. When you realize that God is good and the outcome is in his hands, what can you say? But God, I trust you. God, I give you my life and I, and I believe good things are going to happen. God guarantees his people success or blessing because he's going to do it for them to ensure their success. Look at what verse 24 says. Verse 24, he will give their kings into your hand and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. I wonder how many of your problems you've destroyed because you are in such alignment with God and his will and you're in such obedience to his word that every problem you come up against trembles at your presence. Or do you quake and worry and become anxious Every time there's a difficulty. Every time there's a challenge. If your first thought is, oh no, you're, you're lacking faith. You're not being obedient to walking in the, the call that God has given to you. His promise is that he will do great things in your life. Now that doesn't mean you lay down and play dead, amen? Amen. God's promise is that they will overcome, that they will be victorious, and that they will succeed. I love what Proverbs 21.31 says. Proverbs 21.31, it says that horse is made ready for the day of battle. That's what we do. We make the horse ready for the day of battle. And then the next part says, but the victory is God's. Friends, it is difficult to understand sometimes the balance, the dynamic between our responsibility and God's sovereignty. All I can tell you is this, you are responsible and God is sovereign. The two might not always get along in your mind, but the two are both true. And you are being called by God to be obedient. So go do, knowing all the while that God is orchestrating things in your life to the pleasure of his will and the good of his people. To close, let me say this. In Deuteronomy 7, we learn three truths about God's people. They are righteous, they are chosen, and they are blessed. And we all come to the Bible with preconceived ideas of what truth is, and sometimes we have an argument with the Bible because the Bible's truth and our truth don't necessarily agree. And the scriptures go to lengths to help us sit humbly and quietly to hear what it has to say to us. It's not always easy to hear God's sovereignty. It's not always to hear this idea of holy war. And it's not always easy to hear that God's blessings for us are in our hand and are disposed according to our obedience. But this is what we've seen today, that the marks of God's people, as terrific as they are, are in the hands of a sovereign God and let me close by saying this. What we can understand clearly should help us understand what is difficult and unclear. 
And what we can understand clearly is this. God is just, and everything he does is right. God is love, and he always acts within the boundaries of that love. And God is good, and everything that he does will morally and ethically be excellent and beautiful in his perspective. <laughs> 